This is the book which we look to for the founding of the Christian church, and we're gathered in a church this morning, and we find at the very beginning of this book the preaching of a sermon on the day of Pentecost by Peter, and then the response, which is that thousands of people gave themselves in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ that morning. But that's not all we're told. We're told that they were baptized and that they were added to a number. And I am uh, increasingly convinced of the importance of noting the language of Scripture in this regard. If you look with me, you'll see verse 37. They are responding to the sermon, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter in verse 38 says, Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39, For the promises for you and your children and for all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And then look down at verse 41. So then what happens? Those who had received his word, and this reminds us this morning that we can be sitting under the preaching of the word but not receptive. Uh, The difference is those who receive the word and respond, and look what it says about them. It says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. That's the response. And that day, what? There were added about 3,000 souls. Now, ask yourself the question, added, added where? Where were they added? And you'll see this throughout the book of Acts. You'll see it says they were added to their number. Um... And what it means is that when we receive the message of Jesus Christ and when we respond to the preaching of the word, that there is a physical response also. And the physical response is baptism. And baptism is a symbol of being added to the church of Jesus Christ. And if you'll look around you, I... um, You know, I remember, I remember when I was a kid hearing older people say that they couldn't believe the changes in their life. And I will just say, increasingly, I can't believe the changes. And I'm 49, and so I'll tell you my age, probably when I get to be 50, I'll stop it. But um, at 49, the growth in our country of this uh, sort of... Uh, Oh, mystical crud of the new spirituality. I don't want to dignify it with a better label than that. But I mean, I recently picked up a freebie newspaper, and uh, I think it was up in Indy. And man, that whole thing was just filled with the old and the new paganism. And it's all just like this sort of cosmic, karmic, yin-yang, back-to-nature, eat-no-sugar kind of stuff that, you know, some of us dabbled in in the 60s and early 70s, but I mean, people take it seriously today. And uh, they think it's a religion. And of course, on this weekend, you all must note that you go across all of the cash registers at Barnes & Noble, and everyone has a pile of brochures, and the brochures talk about and give you the opportunity to join in the worship of an idol along with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Now ask yourself this question. If I went in there with about a hundred trifold brochures 
inviting people to come to church of the Good Shepherd and worship His Holiness, the Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, not just of Tibet. Okay? Do you think I'd get them on the counter? Not a chance. And the reason is, everybody understands that the cutting edge of our spirituality today, progressive spirituality, is this sort of, you know, yin-yang, sort of Hindu, sort of, you know. Now, let me ask you a question. What does the Dalai Lama claim to be a god of? It's very clear. He claims to be a god of Tibet. Okay? Now, think about that. It's very interesting, the very same people who would argue that there should be no connection between religion and government, the very people who would argue that the Ten Commandments should be taken out of a courtroom, all right, are those people who then turn around and push someone who says that his identity and his country's identity are one and the same, and he's a god, his holiness. And so... Think about this. It's all up to your option. It's all something you can opt into or out of. It's a very sort of uh, permeable spirituality, you understand. It's a consciousness. The modern spirituality is a consciousness. Do you understand what I'm saying? it's, It's a mood you enter into. It's an environment. All right? Christianity is not that. Christianity proclaims the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Brothers, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized. Very concrete. Baptism is so concrete that many people won't do it. Why? Because it's humiliating. Imagine if you were proselytized into the ancient Israelite religion and they said, be circumcised. There's no cosmic karma about that. It's very real, right? And so this is Christianity. It's, 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 it's a rock. It's a doctrine. It's absolutely exclusive. It does not allow any other God. There is no other God. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. All right? This is Christianity. And uh, I, I, I had actually entertained wishes that... In this uh, day of pursuit of world peace, that uh, I would have been invited to be a part of this uh, great conversation about world peace, along with the supermodel and other people today. Um, (laughs) And I, I would have liked to do that so that I could explain that the peace that this world will know can only come through Jesus Christ. And that the Dalai Lama is not a part of that peace. Now, yes, there is truth to the fact that the Dalai Lama can uh, push his religious followers more in the direction of peace than hatred. And yet that peace, the very peace that's built upon a false god, a false religion, is ultimately not peace. Did you notice when you were singing... um, I always get a kick out of this. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Did you notice one of the things you sang? You you sang, you're rejoicing at the coming of what? The judge shall come. Do you remember that? Now, what do you think he's going to judge? Now, we all know that he'll judge the impatient words of a father over his children. 
And we'd all be ready to trot that one out. But you know, he will judge every usurper for his glory. Every single religion will be condemned. And if you read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is a constant condemnation of every other religion. So if you go to the book of Acts and you put yourself in the book of Acts, I want you to put the Dalai Lama there. I want you to put Jewish rabbis there. I want you to put Muslims. I want you to put the North Korean dictator, communist dictator. Because all of these people believe in a God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you say, the Lord our judge shall come, I want you to realize that, that our Lord Jesus Christ is going to judge all usurpers to his throne. And I want you to ask yourself, do you look forward to that? You said, rejoice, our, our Lord the judge shall come. I mean, you sang that. So is it really your hope that he will come and that he will dash to pieces all usurpers to his throne. In other words, nowhere in Scripture do we see Christians trying to fit in. It is an exclusive gospel. Now, it is a gospel of love, and that's what we're going to get into this morning. But unless you start by seeing that it's exclusive, and that when you believe, you are baptized, and that when you are baptized, you're just not just a part of some cosmic group, but you are added to the number of the church of Jesus Christ, okay? Unless you start with those sort of black and white, non-negotiable realities, then you will never experience the peace that the world is always talking about. I'll never forget hearing an interview of Bob Dylan over in England. And this was probably 20 years, 22 years ago. And... He was being interviewed by some cosmic earth yin-yang dude, all right? And the guy was saying to him, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what do you think about peace, you know? And Dylan was being his typical sort of, you know, not saying much and just trying to be cooler than everybody else. And uh, the guy kept pressing him, well, what do you think about peace, you know? And finally, Dylan said, peace. You want to know what peace is? He said, peace is the time when you stop to reload your rifle. He says, that's the only peace we'll ever get in this life. And there's a lot of truth to that. Well, then the guy tried to push him into talking about reincarnation. And uh, again, Dylan wasn't having any of it. The guy, don't you think you've lived before? Can't you sense that you had another life on and on and on? You know, peace and reincarnation. And Dylan finally said, he said, look, man, he said, how many times do you need to do it before you get it right? He said, if you haven't gotten it right this time, what makes you think you're going to get it right next time? Don't be sucked in, people. Dalai Lama is his holiness, the Dalai Lama. There is no separation between church and state with this man. It is the same. He is a god, and he is a usurper to the throne of Jesus Christ. And we don't say this because we like America or the West. All right? We say this because Scripture reveals it. You have to look at Scripture and take it on its own terms if you're a Christian. And what Scripture reveals is there is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved. Okay? That's it. 
And either you bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, or he will come as a judge over you. And over any god that you worship, whether it's your SUV, okay, or it's your Dalai Lama, or it's just a sort of enlightened progressive materialism where you can pay lip service to cosmic sort of nice things and be rich at the same time. Okay? It'll all be dashed. So you look here, and what it says is, with many other words, verse 40, kept exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added 3,000 souls, added to the church, those who proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, the identity of the church. And I want to focus today on probably that place in God's truth that the world today, especially here in the United States, most wants to claim that it has a parallel good. All right? But it's most clearly a counterfeit. So let's read. It says what? In verse 43... Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who believed were together and had all things in common. I'm sorry, I started too late. I'm supposed to start with verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and what? Breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number. Day by day, those who were being saved. You notice that again? Adding to their number. You know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. 3,001, 3,002, 3,003. Now, this is God's word, and it is eternally true. And I want you to look at this text and think of the issue of inclusivity and uh, um, diversity and multiculturalism. Every time you hear about that, especially in a university community, and I have to admit, I said to my wife this last week, Rita Cuffey told me that when Dave Ferris left Bloomington after, what, almost 20 years or more, he said the one thing he would never do again is go to a university community. And I'm beginning to understand that after almost 12 years. Because the conceit of a university community is just, you can taste it. You know, we are all so smug and self-satisfied. And we're so confident of the wisdom of our knowledge, you know. And it just oozes from the pores of everything we do. Now, you might say, not me, and then I'll say, well, not me either. But I mean, you know... <laughs> This town is us, you know. And you look at this community and you think, what is one of the principal conceits of this community? And one of the principal conceits of this community is that from a progressive enlightened mentality, it will produce intimacy, 
and unity and peace. I mean, honestly, is that not the heart of the conceit of liberalism? That through a variety of sort of social public policy apparatus and and sort of a, a constant indoctrination through classes, even meteorology classes, you know, that somehow when the stars come together, and Curtis, how does that song go? Well, you know which song. When, when, when peace... Come on, sing it to us. Go ahead. No, do it. Come on. When peace... Listen to the words. Oh, okay, when the moon is in the sun. All right, now sing it. This is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Age. Okay. Yes, Aquarius. And listen, listen, this is a military song. Aquarius, and it was the anthem of the hippie generation, and this is what we have inherited. You have to understand this. It's true. And then you go to John Lennon, and John Lennon says, Love, love, love. All you need is love. You know? Okay. And then you go to John Lennon singing what? It was played on this piano one day, and I came in and I said, that song will never be played in this church. Okay? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living in harmony. You can say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday... You'll join us, and the world will be as one. And this is so constant in our culture that we have a president talking about one world and a president who's Republican. That's how deeply this has worked into our ethos. Never be worried about the things that you're having punched in your face. Be worried about the things that you suck from the breast of culture. And you're totally unaware of taking it. Those are the things, the things that are so much a part of the common culture that you're not aware when you drink them. And let me tell you, if you know after 25 years the words to that song, that says something about me, doesn't it? Huh? So liberalism has the conceit of believing that it will bring us peace and love, that it will bring us unity, that we will arrive at the age of Aquarius, that love is all we need, and that it hopes someday you'll join it. And that's at the center. And what it believes is that as we go through this, we will be united as a world. All right? This is its conceit. Now, what is the unity of the world? Well, the unity of the world, I would propose to you, is much more accurately portrayed by Scripture, which shows us that 
although in the Garden of Eden there was a perfect unity between God and man and between man and woman, all right, it says the two were one and there can be no greater unity than a man and a woman being one. That only God can do. And what happens is, as soon as man sins, God comes to Adam in the garden and he says, you know, basically what happened to Adam? What does Adam say? We see the unity. What is the unity? Adam says what? That's right. Adam says, the woman that thou didst give to me, she gave me of the fruit and I did eat. That's called blame shifting. And it shows that the unity of the man and the woman has been destroyed. Now, what about the unity of the family? No sooner did Adam and Eve get divided than who else got divided? Cain and Abel. God came to Cain and he said, where is your brother? And where was his brother? You remember? The story is that Cain, being jealous of his brother, murdered him. And what is the response? The sweet unity that there should be between brothers. The response is, what, am I, am I my brother's keeper? And so you've got the husband and the wife, and then you have brothers, and then you have Babel. You have this city that has, again, the conceit of not just being one, but climbing into the throne room of heaven. And they're building, building, building. And God sees them. And God decides to judge it. And so what does God do? God sends languages, and the languages atomize (laughs) the human race. So you've got marriage, you've got the family, and then you have the human race. Okay? And no matter how hard people try today, they will not be able to put it back together. It is like Humpty Dumpty. It won't be put together by getting religious people to stop being prejudiced against sexual perversity. It won't be put back together by getting the legislatures to pass no-fault divorce laws so there doesn't have to be so much fighting when a couple decides to break it up. It won't be put back together by getting people to say that if they had their choice, uh, all their friends would be black and not white. It's not going to work by going to the south side of Chicago and getting the people who live there to all of a sudden move up to Evanston. Okay? Sure, you can write lots of articles about racial injustice and, and racial peace and unity, but you still have the south side of Chicago and Evanston. All right? It's not going to get better by creating the League of Nations or the United Nations. There's only one thing that can unite what has been divided by sin. Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in the relationships of brothers and sisters to one another, or whether it is in this world. And the only thing that can unite us is the blood of Jesus Christ, which we avail ourselves of by repentance and faith. Under the cross, everybody's level, all right? It's only when we die to our conceits and our smug, progressive, intellectual blather, all right, that we are able to be one with one another. 
Now, I hope you, being the uh, products of the 20, 20th century and now living in the 21st century, I hope you realize that there was never a time in history when the utopian view of the world being one through man's effort was so, so saturated in history than the 20th century. I hope you realize that the entire vision of communism was that. And I hope you realize the hypocrisy of it, that never have so many millions and millions and millions of people been wiped out as by the utopian vision of being one through the shared means of production. All right? Never have as many people been killed. Never have as high a proportion of people been killed in the vision of being one. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, do you think about these things? So the greatest usurper in the last century was communism, and it has been revealed in technicolor that it was nothing but a satanic plague. And there are only a few places in the world left where they still believe that it has any reality. And even, even those places are being revealed to be anything but a united place. You think of North Korea, where in the interest of this supposed utopian goal of you know, us all being together, what we end up having is we end up having a ruler and his elite who drive down the middle of the street and never have to stop for stoplights again, Okay, same thing. This is apparently everywhere. I was just reading an article two days ago about North Korea. All right. And millions of his people are starving to death over the course of the last decade. Millions. So what will happen in America? Well, we, we like to look down on the communists for the 50 to 60 million of Stalin and the millions in the Khmer Rouge and the millions in the China Cultural Revolution, you know, and, and we go around the world and then we think of how many people have died in this. But what about America? What about our utopian vision? What about death? Yeah. And this is where if I were a good boy, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mention it. But think of abortion, huh? You know, all that's needed for us to be able to, sac to, to salvage our, our autonomy and self-determination and, and our college degree, um, all that's needed to keep us from having a Down syndrome baby at the age of 43 and having to care for that baby the rest of our little amniocentesis, you know, and, and just that's the doctor. And then we can, we can remove this product of conception if it's defective. Do you know that spina bifida babies today are becoming non-existent? Do you know why? Because they've perfected testing for it in the womb, largely. Isn't it nice to have a clean bunch of people? And so we go on to the campus and uh, we talk about self-determination. We talk about uh, a woman should have control over her body. And in our own country, year after year, it's somewhere around 1.25 million. Around the world, it's 50 to 60 million every single year. And this is just abortion. This does not include infanticide, where children are born who are defective and somehow don't receive treatment. This does not include the elderly who are simply not fed, not given penicillin for lung infections, all right, just, just little things. 
or the elderly who can clearly tell that they're no longer loved and wanted, and so they die. But we didn't take any steps to kill them. And so what I'm saying is, if you look at communism, it's clear, and everybody's writing it now. Even the New York Times is carrying articles about what it once viewed as a good utopia. It's now admitting that it was a false one. All right? But when will people write the history of the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s of the United States building its wealth and its abundance and its convenient lives on the backs of dead people? When will that blood become clear? You see, the United States is just like everybody else. All the talk of unity, all the talk of having one world, of having peace, all the talk of love is all you need is a lie. It's a lie. It's absolutely a lie. There is only one name given among men whereby we might be saved. There is only one name who will unite black and white. There's only one name that will bring together man and woman. And that name is Jesus Christ. And so the minute they hear the message of Jesus Christ, the minute they repent the minute they believe, the minute they're baptized and added to the number of the church, all of a sudden what? Husband and wife are put back together. Brother and sister are put back together. Thousands, the whole village, are put back together. You see this? All of a sudden, in the church you find, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. And all of a sudden, guess what? You see the Garden of Eden coming up again. The world will never believe it. The world thinks that Eve took destiny into her own hands and made a life for herself. And this is what feminists write about Eve when she took the fruit. All right. And then you see that brother and sister are put back together. You see Timothy being exhorted to treat the younger sisters in his church with absolute purity as sisters in the Lord. And all of a sudden you see that in the church somebody isn't a sex object. They're a woman. They're my friend. And in the church we can be free with one another. We do not need to be fearful of one another. Brothers and sisters. And in the church, brothers can confess their sins to each other. Even the most secret sins. The unity is recreated. And in the church, the old and the young, and the slave and the free, and the boss and the foreman, and the union, and the management. All of us are brought together and we're united as one. And this is only the work of Jesus Christ. And the world's trying to counterfeit. The world is doing everything it can to counterfeit it through every means that it possibly can gather. But the world cannot do it. The world is going to be no more successful today than it's been in the 20th century through its various utopian visions. It won't happen. I was reading 
an article about veterinarians this week, and there were a number of things interesting in the article. But one of the most interesting things was to find out that veterinary medicine has turned away from the helping of uh, farmers to the uh, um, uh, well to pets. I don't know how to put it. Uh, so no longer are farm animals at the center of veterinary medicine, but it's now pets. And then the New Yorker says it's turned from utilitarianism to emotional need. Think about that. Why? Because what? And then it says because pets have replaced children in many families. Now, what is there about a pet that makes a good companion? Now, I don't want to get into jokes here. I mean, I've heard some of the jokes about differences between dogs and cats, and they're hilarious. But think about this. What is there about a pet that makes a good companion? Well, the answer is a pet is like completely devoid of mutuality with you. Now, you can write books about it and you can, you know, act as if the pet understood that you needed a little extra sleep this morning. And so he waited coming in 15 more minutes, you know, and you can go on all of these mind trips about how the pet can read your heart and, and you have really a mutual relationship. All right. And so today they say that, uh, what, 75 percent of uh, all pet owners, all right, a study shows, call their pet uh, every day, every day say to their pet, I love you. Okay? And 85% of them, pet owners, refer to themselves as their pet's mother or father. Now, what is there about pets that have caused the numbers, it's gone up from like 100 million to, or 80 million to 130 million in the last 15 years, number of dogs and cats in our country. Okay? What is there about pets? Well, ultimately, who's in charge? There's no question. You bring a husband into your home, and that's one gnarly proposition. You bring a wife into your life. <laughs> and again, that's, I mean, you know, I love my wife and everything. But it's not easy, is it? In other words, in order to have unity between two human beings, it's hard work because they can talk to you. <laughs> and they understand the moral reality behind what you try to justify as your needs. They know it's selfishness. They know you inside and out. And when they criticize you, they're on the money. When have you heard a dog criticizing his master? The most a dog can do is show that he has submission syndrome and he crawls through rooms and has his tail between the legs and can't control his bladder, and that's how he criticizes his master. And yet we read of the church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They shared their property and possessions 
They continued, did you notice in verse 46, with one mind, one mind. You know, the most common prayer request of people who are in graduate programs is that the Lord will cause them to be able to weave their way through the politics, departmental politics, in order to get their doctrine. Even within a discipline, you don't have one mind. And yet it says about the church that they had what? Continuing, verse 46, with one mind in the temple. And breaking bread from where? House to house. Not from sanctuary to sanctuary. Not just in the temple. Not at restaurants. But from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And then it says again, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now how does the world deal with the unity of a church that has slave and free, union and management, black and white, male and female, and there's just a sweet unity. The way the world deals with that is it's converted. The world says, I give up my utopian progressive liberal vision and I look at Jesus Christ and he owns my heart and I'm going to be added to the number also. This is how the world deals with it. Now, I want to remind you that the first devotion that we read about here, if you look at verse 42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And again, this is contrary to the world. The world doesn't like the idea that dogma is the first devotion of the church. The world would like sentiment and emotion to be the first devotion. But we first come under the truth that there is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved than Jesus Christ. We start with Jesus Christ and then we have sweet unity. Now let me ask you, what do you know of this unity in your relationships with those with whom you work, with your wife, with your husband, with your brothers and sisters at home and with your brothers and sisters in this church or your church? What do you know of this unity? Have you experienced this unity? Have you experienced being taken into a Christian home and sensing the perfect security and peace of being gathered under Christ around a table? In other words, have you broken bread house to house? What about your home? Is your home a place that constantly has people coming in and sitting around your table sharing in the unity of Jesus Christ? Is that your home? You say, well, you know, I don't have the gift of hospitality. And I say, bunk. Nobody has a gift of hospitality. Why do you think it says in the New Testament, practice hospitality without complaining? Probably what you mean by hospitality is, uh, what's that woman's name? Martha. Martha Stewart. You know? where you have to have everything together before you do it because it's all about you and not about Jesus Christ. And so you have to have the curtains matching the who knows what. I don't know what she's into, but you have to do it. Okay? But that's not, huh? That's not hospitality. What's that? That's one-upmanship in a feminine way. 
Hospitality is willing to have people see your dirty laundry. Okay, that's hospitality. What do you know about practicing hospitality? What do you know about sharing in hospitality? It says that they were eating from house to house. They were having fellowship from house to house. And you know what this word fellowship means? Did you notice in 2 Corinthians 8, what the whole chapter was basically about? It was about Paul exhorting the Corinthians to put together money to help Christians that didn't have as much money. And so the unity of the church is a unity of eating together in a house that we are humble enough to have dirty. The unity of the Christians is taking our money and giving it to people who have less money. All right. The unity of the church is under Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, sharing with those who have less. Now, when you're young, you, you sort of have a romantic view of this and you think, man, that's neat. I wish my church did that. But I want you to know that as you get older, you're liberated from that hope. And as you get older, what you end up thinking is, yeah, but you know, back then, uh, it doesn't say anything about it, but, but today you look at the kind of people that are poor, and they're poor for a reason. They don't work hard. They don't know how to save their money. They're going into debt all the time. And, you know, they're just not responsible. The church can't just go doling out money to people that are irresponsible. And yet, you know, the interesting thing is it does not say that they shared with those who had need because they had been responsible but hit with a tragedy. What it says is they shared with those who had need. And wouldn't it be a cold and loveless place if Jesus Christ had waited to die until we deserved it? The Bible says while we were yet his enemies, he died for us. And the truth about Christianity is that we help those who don't deserve it. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. When we don't want to forgive someone because they failed, we're reminded that if you do not forgive your brother, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. The Bible says that we're to pray like this, forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so, again, under the cross, it's all level. Under the cross, we don't just give to those who deserve to have. We give to those who may, in human terms, have given up all claim on our generosity. Those who may have lived a life of squandering. You know, think of the mother whose son, after being a prodigal son for 30 years, comes home dying of AIDS. What's that mother going to do? Is she going to tell her son to wait until he has produced 30 more years of godly behavior and then she may help him? No. The Christian mother is going to love her son when he comes home, just as a father goes out on the road and welcomes the prodigal home. And so in the church... We don't invite people to our home to sit around our table and eat who can invite us back. But the Bible says Jesus commanded his disciples to invite home those who could never invite them back, who could never repay them. In the church, we don't give money to those who haven't been stupid only. 
But so sometimes we're able to do that. But we give money to those who have been stupid and irresponsible, who have been spendthrifts. Now, that doesn't mean there's never any accountability. And I want you to know that if you go to our deacons, they will ask you to fill out a form describing what your present financial situation is. Now, this I'm not talking about little amounts. I'm talking about if you're really in serious trouble. And then they will help you financially at the same time as they also help you to make better decisions. But they don't tell you, wait until you've made better decisions and then come to us because you'll be deserving of help. They're willing to help right away. It just comes with a little bit of uh, um, direction or, or something. You know what I'm saying? And it's very interesting that at the beginning of the Christian church in the book of Acts, you see a particular office created. It's the office of deacon. All right? And that office has at its very heart the administration of this oneness in the church. The whole point of deacons is to administrate the benevolence, the unity financially of the church. So we talk about food, we talk about hospitality, we talk about money, possessions. Uh, and, and now I come back and I say, have you experienced this and are you ministering this in your life? Are you willing to be an agent of reconciliation? Are you willing to think about something other than your own colorblindness? Now, I use colorblindness as an example because about 10% of the men in this country are colorblind. And it's one group that has not yet come out of the closet. We have not risen up and demanded equality. Every time we go into an intersection with a blinking light, we don't know if it's yellow or red. We have to ask the people in the cars, make some judgment. At least, that's me. And so I'm talking about my own disability that's quite serious. All right? I mean, it really is. You know, there are jobs I couldn't have when I applied for them because I was colorblind. All right? But, but you're prepared to just say, well, that doesn't matter. That's trivial. But I'm da-da-da-da. And, and that one's serious. And I just say, come on, get off your high horse. Under Christ, colorblind and non-colorblind, black and white, male and free, union and management, it just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your home country is. It doesn't matter whether you have white hair or red. In the church, we're one. We are one. And we are to love each other. And here's what Jesus said. He said, by what? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples because you, what? Love one another. Now, I want you to turn and I want you to look at the person sitting next to you. And if it's, you have your family on one side, turn the other direction. Just look. Look at that person. And tell me, what do you know about them? What do you know about them? Look in front of you. Look behind you. Look and see how many people in this church, you don't have the foggiest clue who they are or what they are. And let me ask you, does your faith, does your faith, your Christian faith, does it have anything to do with that ignorance about other people in, this, in the pew with you? Does it have anything to do with it? Should the pastor be the one we pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious? 
In other words, is he the one that has the duty of getting to know all the gnarly people in the church so that you can just say, I pay the pastor? I mean, honestly, that's how many of you live. What about the love that you're commanded to show the world that is the proof that you're disciples of Christ? How can you claim to have that love when you only invite people over who can invite you back or make you feel good about yourself? How can you claim to have that love when you don't know the people in this church that have serious problems? You try to avoid it, hoping the deacons, the elders, the pastors, or the older women will take that off your shoulders. How can you, not, how can you claim to know that love when you don't ever give money to the poor of this church? Did you know that the guy that used to steal in Ephesians is told to stop stealing? Why? Well, so he can prove to his future father-in-law that he's a real serious man and will provide for that man's daughter and her eventual children. But that's not what it says. It says, stop stealing and work so that you will what? So that you will have money to share with those who are in need. It's like wacko. Listen to this. It says, A new commandment I give to you, our Lord says, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. All right? So people can judge whether we know Jesus Christ by how we love one another. Okay? But here's an even more intense one. In John 17, it says, I do not, he's praying the high priestly prayer to his father, and he says this, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, referring to his inner disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, and that's us, the teaching of the apostles, passed down to us through their words, the apostles' words. He's praying for us, and he says, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, what? So that the world might believe that you sent me. Do you understand this? If we don't love one another, the world despises us because it knows that that claim is what proves the truth that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ. So we're proven to not be the true disciples of, of Jesus Christ if we don't love one another. But more than that, Jesus Christ is claimed to be an illegitimate, a usurper of the throne if we don't love one another. The world will not believe that he was sent by the Father if we don't love one another. In other words, again, the reputation of Jesus Christ is at stake with the conduct of the church of Jesus Christ. If it's not holy, then he isn't holy, and that's why we discipline sin in the church of Jesus Christ. If we're not clean, we don't come to the table. And that's why we fence the Lord's table. We don't just throw it out willy-nilly every week to everybody that comes. But we caution and warn you. And if we don't love, then the world has every right to say that it does not believe that Jesus is sent by the Father because the first thing that the Father sending the Son will do is to create, again, the unity that was in the Garden of Eden, the love that should exist between human beings made in the image of God. Now, what does this have to do with Church of the Good Shepherd today? Well, there are the obvious things. If you do not make a point of trying to have somebody home today, to your home, your home, who cannot repay you, make no mistake about it, 
you are making a conscious decision to look into the mirror of the Word and then to turn away and forget what you saw. Okay? I don't care how new you are to Bloomington. I don't care if you've never heard this before. You've heard it now, and I don't think I could have been clearer. And so consequently, you now have a choice. You can obey the Word and show the world the love that's within the church, or you can choose not to do it. If the next time you have an opportunity, you do not give money for the sake of the needy and the poor, some of you selling property to do it, then you are looking in the mirror of the Word and you're turning away and you are making a decision that you will not obey your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If the world looks at you and says that God did not send Jesus Christ, but that God is the Dalai Lama, because it's seen that you have no love for the other believers, they are justified and you are condemned. But now here's the application that you're not going to like, some of you. One more. And this is the fact that I believe in small groups. And this is where I close the sale. Okay, my whole goal this morning is to get you to see that at the heart of the church is intimacy, is unity, is fellowship. And it would be a joke if we gave money to each other but did not confess our sins and encourage one another and love one another and forgive one another. And I ask you, how can you do that with people that you just barely are on a first name basis with? You can't do it. And so I want to close. There are times where a pastor likes to cite authorities that are so far beyond reproach, so estimable, so high, so mighty, <laughs> you know, that he takes comfort from standing next to such men. And the one I want to use today is uh, George Whitfield. All right. George Whitfield was the great preacher of the Great Awakening worked with Jonathan Edwards and a number of other people in England over in this country. He preached all over the place. He preached out in the streets because most churches wouldn't allow him in. And no sooner had they done that than none of them were large enough to hold the people that came to hear the word of God proclaimed by Whitfield. And Whitfield says this. He says, Brothers and sisters, let us plainly and freely tell each other what God has done for our souls. Isn't that sweet? Let's plainly and freely tell each other what God has done for our souls. To accomplish this, you would do well to follow what others have done and to form yourselves into little companies, little groups. Do you know that Calvin did this with the pastors in Geneva? They had little companies of pastors. And they would confess their sins to each other. He says, brothers and sisters, let's plainly and freely tell each other what God has done for our souls. To accomplish this, you would do well to follow what others have done and to form yourselves into little companies. He says of four or five, we say maybe of twelve. And meet once a week to tell each other what is in your heart so that you can pray for and comfort each other, each of you as they have a need. No one except one who has experienced this, can tell the unspeakable advantages of such a union and communion of souls. I don't think that anyone who really loves his own soul and his brothers as himself will be shy of opening his heart so that he may have their advice, reproof, admonition, and prayers as occasions require. 
and you found yourself sort of neutral about being in a small group, an accountability group, here's what Whitfield says, I don't think anyone who really loves his own soul and his brothers as himself will be shy of opening his heart so that he may have their advice, reproof, admonition, and prayers as occasions require. A sincere person will count this time as one of the greatest blessings. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the division and schism and pride and arrogance and utopian vision that this world is lost in, but that from the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the time of the children of Israel and the time of the church of Jesus Christ, you have been uniting your people in humility under the cross and in love for one another. Father, bring unity to our sibling relationships, to our marriages, to our places of employment, to our dorm rooms, to our apartments. Bring unity to this church. And Father, we pray that you will be pleased by our conduct, that our homes today will be filled with strangers. Father, we pray that we will love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand.